Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the Chair of the Council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their Elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today is Judge Donna Woodburn, a Judge of the District Court in New South Wales. Before she was appointed a judge more than 10 years ago, Judge Woodburn was a Crown Prosecutor. She has great experience in the criminal law and will talk about the rules judges must follow when sentencing. Welcome, Judge. Hello, good afternoon. Judge, um, you've been a judge of the District Court for how long? 11 years. 11 years. And before that, uh, you were a Crown Prosecutor. Yes, before that, I was a Crown Prosecutor as well then as a Deputy Director of Public Prosecutions. And then I became a Crown Prosecutor in 1997. Um, And... Then in 2008, I took silk and then I became a Deputy Director of Public Prosecutions. And then on to the District Court. Uh, I should disclose just for the record that the judge appeared before me many times when I was a judge in the Supreme Court um, and we discussed appropriate sentences for offenders on many occasions. But today we'd like to have the benefit of your experience as a judge of the District Court. Uh, Judge, um, first of all, is is it difficult to determine the sentence for an offender? It is enormously difficult. Um, For example, yesterday I heard a sentence hearing in a matter of dangerous driving causing death and honestly you cannot help but feel almost like you are sentencing one son for killing another. Mm-hmm. Tough times. Very tough indeed, and every decision weighs very heavily. Yeah. Um, what types of cases come up for sentence in the district court? Is there a, a general pattern as to the type of case? Well, in the district court, we deal with all serious criminal offences other than murder, of course, or terrorism. Um, Many of the cases are very serious sexual assaults or very serious personal violence offences. But of course there is the whole range of cases. So um, armed robberies, serious fraud, sexual servitude and slavery, that's a a new area of the law. Uh, There are very serious drug offences, those drug offences include importation offences and commercial supply type offences. So there is a very wide range. In terms of the nature of the cases that you're sentencing, um, am I right in thinking that a great many people have pleaded guilty and the judge's role is confined to accepting that plea and then sentencing for the offence that's accepted by the offender? Yes, that is correct. Um, Many of the people I sentence have pleaded guilty. They may have indicated that plea in the local court and then the matter is sent to the district court where the sentence is imposed. 
Um, other times the person will be found guilty after trial. That might be a trial by a judge or um, most often a trial by jury. And in, in pleading guilty, I suppose the lawyer has a role to advise the client as to what will happen, um, having pleaded guilty, and how the sentencing uh, hearing will proceed. Does the judge have anything to say at the beginning of that hearing, or uh, effectively are you just there to listen to what the parties have to say? In essence, to listen, but of course I must ensure that a plea of guilty entered in the local court is maintained in the district court. Um, and so I must ensure the integrity of the plea if a question arises as to that. Otherwise, what happens at a sentencing hearing? Can you just um, tell us all, just what, what's the process, what happens? All right, well, the process is that the relevant parties must appear before the court. So the prosecutor must appear so must the person who stands to be sentenced. Now that person is entitled to have legal representation, so their solicitor or barrister will appear with them. Um, the court is generally open as well, so members of the public may sit in the courtroom. That includes the victim of any um, offence. There are circumstances where the court may be closed, but those circumstances are quite limited. What sort of circumstances would lead to the closure? Uh, there, well, if there was a child being, or a person who was a child at the time of the commission of the very serious offence, and it must be to be one coming before the district court, the public would be excluded from that hearing. Uh, it may be where it is a sexual assault matter and the uh, victim of the particular matter may have some role to play in the proceedings. The court would close for that portion of the evidence. It may also be closed for a portion of the evidence where, in very limited circumstances, there is sensitive material to be put before the court, such as where a person provides assistance to police. It may be a matter of their safety, particularly if they're going into custody, that that material not be disclosed. But they're very limited circumstances. So ordinarily, all of those people would be in the courtroom and then the matter would proceed. And if you're sentencing after there's been a trial by jury, or with a jury and, and a conviction follows, <coughs> have the jury uh, members allowed to stay and sit in the court and hear the sentencing process? The jury members are allowed to stay, but the practical reality of the situation is that after the verdict is returned, the jury is discharged, they're free to go on their way. And usually the sentence proceedings don't start until another day. Hmm. That is when everyone has had a chance to gather the material that they will need to present to the court on sentence. When the parties are assembled uh, in the courtroom, does the prosecution start or does the defence start? Who, who yes. goes first? Uh, the prosecution does go first. The prosecution will um, provide the court with very necessary 
and basic material upon which the court will need to understand what the charge is. Uh, the prosecutor will present uh, the facts in the matter. They are usually agreed um, with the defence. That is, where a person has pleaded guilty, their legal representative has usually had some say in uh, determining what facts might be put before the court. Um, where there is a conviction after a trial, it's slightly different in that the facts fall to the judge to determine. But in any event, the prosecution will present the facts. The prosecution will also present the criminal history if the person does have one. And the prosecution will present the court with any other document that might be relevant, for example, a victim impact statement. Now, you say the judge will determine the facts if there's been a, a jury trial. Do the parties know what the facts will be when, when they come to address in relation to sentence, or is it just a matter that they'll find out at the end what, what the judge decides? Um, well, the prosecution guidelines, in fact, um, do uh, direct prosecutors to, in effect, prepare some draft facts that uh, they consider the judge will ultimately be asked to find on the sentence, that is, facts that have emerged during the trial. So it won't be a a surprise to the parties. Of course, they will have been present during the trial and so they will have a very good idea of the evidence that has been heard. So that the prosecution tell the judge what the facts might be and what the criminal history might be, do they, does the prosecutor take any other role at that stage of the proceedings or is it then over to the defence? At that stage, it is over to the defence. And what does the defence do typically in a sentencing hearing? Well, the defence has the opportunity to present evidence. Um, they're not obliged to, but of course it, it is very much in their interest to do so on behalf of their client. And that evidence usually concerns the personal circumstances of the offender. So it might comprise a... Um, report from a psychologist or psychiatrist as to the person's mental state either at the time they committed the offence or indeed at the time of the sentencing hearing. It might also comprise material such as uh, references from an employer, from family or friends, material which might reflect on the person's character or their rehabilitation. Um, sometimes oral evidence might also be called. So the offender might um, enter the witness box and um, give some evidence about their personal history and quite often take the opportunity to apologise for the offence that they have committed and the harm that they may have done to the victim of the offence or indeed to the community. Do many offenders take that course, giving evidence? I find 
um, that fewer people are taking that opportunity. So it used to happen quite a lot, but the shift has definitely um, been towards documentary evidence. And so instead of the offender personally telling the court that they are sorry for the offence, that expression of remorse is more commonly found in the report of a psychologist, for example. Yeah, so it comes through a document. Yes. Uh, which has been produced by a third party who's spoken with the offender. That's right. Now, um, that's the defence material. Do the parties then make submissions to the judge? And can you tell us, uh, do the parties suggest what the sentence might be? Uh, both parties are invited to make submissions, but there are limits to those submissions. Um, the submissions are usually directed towards the facts of the offence and um, the level of seriousness of the offence. Um, that's important and each party does wish to be heard on that issue initially. Uh, submissions are also usually directed to the subjective circumstances of the offender, um, particularly, of course, by the defence representative who may wish to point out to the court uh, the mitigating factors being those factors that perhaps affect the sentence and um, make it uh, less than it would otherwise be. Well, I think to now turn to the how the sentence itself is worked out, every offence, which is a statutory offence, carries a maximum penalty provided by the Parliament. Yes. And I assume that's the starting point for the judge in thinking about what sentence might be imposed. Yes, it is. It's, it's, it is a guidepost. Yeah and one has to keep that in mind at all stages of the sentencing process. And then I think the factors relevant to the sentence, although not exhaustively stated, are captured in Section 21A of what's known as the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act. Yes, that's correct. Section 21A does list uh, what are called aggravating factors and mitigating factors. Well, we'll all get probably a little bit lost if we try and go through each uh, limb of Section 21A, but just generally, what sort of things are aggravating factors? Well, aggravating factors are factors which have the potential to increase the level of seriousness of the offence. Um, firstly, for example, uh, where an offence is uh, premeditated that's likely to be more serious than offence that is done on the spur, spur of the moment. So in a very basic sense, some matters make a, an offence more serious than another offence. So if, you, if, um, if, if an assault was a planned assault, for example, uh, on someone as opposed to a spontaneous engagement in a fight in the street, would that, would that make the first, the, the planned one a more, more serious? Yes, yes, generally it, it will. Yeah. 
and may then have a, a greater sentence than the other offence. Yes, it potentially can increase the sentence. Of course, it's just one factor amongst many that must be taken into account. Any other aggravating factors stand out particularly that we should mention? Uh, one aggravating factor that, of course, everybody would regard as a significant one is where an offence is committed in the presence of a child. Um, and that is a matter that is properly taken into account in increasing the level of seriousness of the offence. Yeah. Any others that stand out? Uh, I know well, they're all serious, but are there <laughs> any others that stand out? Um, certainly where there is the use of a weapon that will increase the seriousness of uh, an offence yeah. or where substantial harm has been caused to a victim of an offence, yeah. that is likely to increase the seriousness of the offence. That's on one side of the equation, yes. aggravating. Um, what's on the other side of the equation? Well, on the other side of the equation are mitigating factors, factors which can potentially lessen either the seriousness of the offence or lessen the sentence that is imposed because it's relevant to the personal circumstances of the offender. So matters which might lessen the seriousness of the offence would include where the offence is committed um, under duress, that is pressure from someone else, that might be the case in a drug matter, or where um, an offence is provoked so perhaps in an assault matter, um, the person who committed the offence might have been provoked into committing it. And so whilst they'll be guilty, it's only fair that that is a matter to be taken into account. Um, there are other mitigators which are mitigating, which um, have a very big effect on the determination of the penalty. For example, where someone is remorseful for committing the offence, um, where they are a person with no criminal history, where they are a person who has good prospects of rehabilitation, um, they're matters which bear on and, uh, the sentence. And the personal circumstances, perhaps the upbringing or hardship at some stage of um, an offender's life, does that feature as a mitigating factor or is that separate from the statutory construct? Um, it is separate from the statutory construct, um, but it's an important mitigating factor to be taken into account certain circumstances where a person has had a deprived upbringing, um, indeed where they themselves as children have been exposed to um, an environment that is full of alcohol or violence, um, that is relevant because it bears on their own moral culpability for their offending. Uh, moral culpability is something that not everyone may understand. What do we mean by moral culpability? Well, their responsibility for their offending. Right. Um, a person who's been brought up in those circumstances simply may never have developed the resources that a person um, who has had a good upbringing may have developed 
in resisting impulse, in resisting um, temptation or crime. This is, a, of course, a sore point very often in the community when a, uh, a sentence which proves to be controversial is imposed. It's often said by commentators. Well, the judge was overly influenced by the poor offender's background or his deprived childhood, and that's um, made the sentence too light. Uh, and the comment will often be made, well, what's his, his or her background got to do with the sentence? If they've committed a particular sort of crime, they should pay the same penalty. How do judges view those sorts of uh, remarks? Uh, well, the judges, of course, are very sensitive uh, to the fact that there are a complex number of factors that the judge is required to take into account and balance and uh, determine a sentence that has proper regard to all of those factors. Um, the situation is that the court um, in imposing a sentence must have regard to the purposes of sentence. Now some of those purposes are to do with retribution and deterrence a person must be made accountable for the offence they've committed. The sentence must be one which operates to deter others and to deter the offender from committing offences. But judges are also required to have regard to the other purposes of punishment, which include, for example, rehabilitation um, and the protection of the community. So sometimes the protection of the community is best ensured by imposing a sentence which allows the person to have the uh, necessary uh, rehabilitation and support during re rehabilitation that can be offered to them. If that person can benefit from that and end up because of that or with that assistance leading a more constructive and crime-free life, then the safety of the community will be protected. Um, now I think when you come to define the sentence for an offender, having worked out your aggravating and mitigating factors and having um, presumably a number in your head, you've got to also look at the question of parole. Now, parole is often uh, a difficult concept for people because it appears like the judge, again, may be being a bit soft by allowing someone out of prison if they're going to prison significantly before uh, they've completed their full term. Um, can you help us to understand the nature of parole and its purpose? Yes. <laughs> In this sense, when I'm required by law to impose a sentence, where I'm imposing a sentence of imprisonment, that has a certain structure to it. So the sentence must be comprised of a non-parole period and a balance of term. And the balance of term is the period during which the person 
usually spends on parole. And parole is what? What, what does parole mean for a person? Parole is the balance of the sentence during which they are at liberty and not being held in custody. Um, sometimes that person will be um, required to abide by a whole series of conditions set by the parole authority, so that is not something that as a sentencing judge um, I have control over. So when you've when you sentence and impose a, a non-parole period with a period of parole, that's the end of the judge's role, is it? That then goes to the parole authority to manage that person thereafter. Yes, that's correct. I think there's another concept um, in the sentencing world which relates to parole or non-parole periods, um, which are, has to do with the ratio between the parole period and the head sentence and it's called um, special circumstances. Can you help us to understand what special circumstances might be in relation to parole? Yes, well, uh, special circumstances is a uh, concept, in effect, that is relevant to how the sentence is structured. The law um, imposes a constraint on the sentencing discretion that the judge has by providing that when a sentence of imprisonment is imposed, the balance of the term must not exceed the non-parole period by one third unless the court finds special circumstances. I might illustrate that because it might be easier to understand. If I have determined to impose a sentence of four years, uh, the law provides that the non-parole period would be three years and there would be a balance of term of one year. Uh, that's because the balance of term must not exceed one-third of the non-parole period for the sentence. However, I might decide there are special circumstances for the balance of term, that is the period spent on parole. Um, being more than one-third of the non-parole period of the sentence. And to give an example of that situation, um, perhaps the person has an entrenched drug problem. Um, once they are released from custody, adjusting to a um, crime-free life will not be easy, if, particularly if they have insufficient assistance or insufficient assistance for a reasonable period of time. So in those circumstances, I might consider that it would be a benefit to the person and therefore to the community if the person is supervised over a more lengthy um, period of parole. Um, but I can only do that if I decide there are special circumstances. And once I decide that, then uh, I would increase the balance of term of the uh, sentence. That does, of course, reduce the non-parole period of the sentence, so I must always ensure that um, in doing so that the non-parole period of the sentence still adequately represents 
the seriousness of the offence, taking into account all relevant matters. This does sound like a difficult process. Um, it is. It is very difficult. Well, let's get even more complex. Uh, we've been talking about people who the judge decides must go to jail. Yes. But I think there's a, a number of other ways in which the court can impose a sentence without requiring someone to go into custody. Can we just have a, a look at what they might be? What are the options that may be available to a sentencing judge short of putting someone in prison? Well, in relation to that, it is important to note that um, the court must not sentence an offender to imprisonment unless it is satisfied having considered all possible alternatives that no other penalty is appropriate. So in every sentencing decision, I must consider all possible alternatives before I could ever impose a sentence of imprisonment. And there are a number of alternatives open to the court. These are set out in the legislation, the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act. The court can make orders that do not involve the recording of a conviction. And there are three types of order in that regard. There's an order directing that the charge be dismissed an order discharging the person under a conditional release order, an order discharging the offender on condition that the offender enter into an agreement to participate in an intervention program. The other orders the court can make... Just, just pause for a moment. In what sort of circumstances would the court make an order in, in those terms? Well... Um, because the, each of those orders involve um, not recording a conviction, the reality is that those orders would be made in cases where the offence is um, not particularly serious in the scheme of district court matters. Um, so the... Uh, Offence may be a less serious one. The offender would have to or is more likely to be a person with no criminal history and the offender is uh, likely to have compelling uh, personal circumstances. Um, and would it be right to think that many young people or younger persons, not, not young people as such, but younger offenders uh, may fit into that category? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and just, just so we understand, uh, if a, ju a judge takes that course, that would mean that that person, although they may have committed an offence, doesn't have a criminal record. Is that... That's is, is that absolutely correct. Right. So there's no blemish on their on their worksheet, so to speak, in life. That's right. By reason. But what happens if they don't meet the conditions which the judge imposes? If they don't meet the conditions, uh, they are liable to be called up before the court. With what potential consequence? With the potential that they will be resentenced. And at that point, the judge will have opened to them 
all of the options that were originally available. Right. In 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 uh, in cartoons and other forms of entertainment, what often is the concept of the last chance. The judges handing out the last chance. Is it right to think of this approach to the sentencing of a an offender as being a last chance? <coughs> and if it's not taken, then the chance may may disappear. That's right, and and a, uh, the last chance is not something that's enshrined in the legislation, but in practical terms, um, the court takes the opportunity to make known to the offender that they um, must comply with the conditions of release if there are those conditions, um, otherwise they will be liable to be recalled. Do judges use the expression last chance? Um, I don't, but others might. might. Uh, To me, last chance might apply where an offender has had a number of other chances before the court. Um, Right. So last chance, in your terms, would mean the end of the line. In effect, yes. <laughs> now, what other options are then available to the sentencing judge? Um, well, the the other orders the court can make do involve the recording of a conviction. Um, so those other orders are a conviction with no other penalty or a conviction and a fine or a conviction and a conditional release order discharging the offender or a conviction and a community correction order. Well, the last two, I take it, impose obligations on an offender. Uh, What sort of obligations flow from orders made in those terms? Well, those obligations... um, in general terms, have uh, two basic conditions attached uh, to the orders that are made by the court. The offender must not reoffend, and they must appear before the court if called upon to do so. Um, the court, however, um, does have available to it, and indeed must in certain circumstances attach other conditions to the particular order. So those conditions can include matters uh, such as a requirement to submit to supervision by a community corrections officer, a curfew, um, a community uh, service work order of no more than 500 hours, a requirement that the person participate in a rehabilitation program or receive uh, treatment, a requirement to abstain from alcohol or drugs, a requirement not to associate with um, particular people or a requirement not to go to a particular area. So they're the um, conditions that generally attach to such orders. Um, the court doesn't impose all of them, of course. Judge, um, I think there's another option that's available when considering the appropriate sentence, and that's an intensive correction order. Yes, that is. Can you tell us is. what that's all about? 
Yes, and a court that has sentenced an offender to imprisonment in respect of one or more offences may make an order directing that that sentence be served by way of intensive correction in the community. Uh, there are constraints upon that um, because such an order is not available where the term of imprisonment exceeds certain limits. The sentence of imprisonment must be two years or less for a single offence or an aggregate sentence of three years or less for multiple offences. So that operates to constrain the availability of that order. But in practical terms, what it means if such an order is made is that instead of going to jail to serve the sentence of imprisonment, the person will serve their sentence free in the community, but subject to the supervision of community corrections and subject to certain conditions. And I assume if they breach uh, again, as we discussed earlier, if they breach the conditions, they come back before the court. Is that what would happen or not? The system operates slightly differently because um, where a person breaches an intensive correction order, in fact, the parole authority deals with that breach. You often hear of the concept of the range of appropriate penalty. Uh, how do judges go about actually identifying the right number for a particular offender. Do you look at past cases? Do you look at the statistics that are collected by uh, the Judicial Commission uh, or the Bureau of Crime Statistics? What, what, what do you do to get the right number? Um, I look at a combination of material. Of course, I always bear in mind the maximum penalty that is specified for the offence or any standard non-parole period. Um, but I also have regard to other cases. Um, there are generally a range of other cases that either I have dealt with or many other judges have dealt with. Um, and I'm familiar with those because, of course, I read about them, um, particularly where someone has appealed to the Court of Criminal Appeal. The Court of Criminal Appeal will... Um, say whether a particular sentence is manifestly excessive or manifestly inadequate. So I have regard to those cases that are made known to me either by my experience or where the parties bring those to my attention. Um, there are also statistics that are available. The Judicial Commission collates statistics for offences for sentences imposed in the district court and that will give a very broad range of the way in which the sentencing discretion has been exercised before. In some cases, um, it's possible to have regard to a guideline judgment and those guideline judgments um, have been in the past particularly useful because they have identified factors that are relevant to the determination of an appropriate sentence. I think they've been slightly controversial along the way. Uh, well, 
Well, they have. I mean, none of the information I've just referred to dictates the number or the length of the sentence. Um, But it is useful to have regard to other material in the form of guideline judgments or previous sentencing decisions because it's usually in those decisions that the relevant considerations are identified. Not the correct number for the sentence because there is no single correct number for a sentence. And I think at the end of the day what the courts have said is that the ultimate process can be described as instinctive synthesis which is the judge bringing all these factors together. Is that how we should understand that somewhat dense phrase? Absolutely. The objective factors, the subjective factors, the principles of law, the maximum penalty, all those factors have to be balanced. And by a process of instinctive synthesis, a sentence is arrived at that... Um, hopefully takes due account of all of those factors so that the sentence in the end is just and appropriate for the particular offence and the offender before the court. Judge, uh, in the course of a year, this may be a difficult question, how many offenders would you be likely to sentence in the course of an ordinary year? Um... I'd have to calculate that, but can I can I say when I'm running a trial, yeah. um, usually every Friday afternoon I will be sentencing someone, so I will set aside Friday afternoons to sentence a person. Of course, um, when I'm not sitting in a trial, uh, for one reason or another, then during the course of a particular week I will get a variety of matters, some of which will be sentences. So I try not to list too many sentences on the one day, but the reality is sometimes you have to sentence multiple people on a day. Three or four. Say three on a day. Of course, sometimes um, uh, there may be co-offenders. So if there are six co-offenders, even though it's the one sentencing proceeding, you might be sentencing six people. Um, And... um, at the end of the sentencing hearing, when both parties have made their submissions and all the facts are before you, do you then proceed straight away to impose the sentence or do you adjourn and take time to reflect on the appropriate sentence? How do you go about that part of the task? Because I'm sentencing people quite often for very serious offences um, and often for multiple offences, I will adjourn and um, consider the material before I uh, give a judgment on sentence. It will depend, however, because sometimes it's imperative to deal with the matter very quickly. For example, where a person for one reason or another is in custody and the sentence I consider I would likely impose is less than the period of time they have spent in custody. Um, clearly in that circumstance... Not fair to keep them in jail. No, I would move to sentence them very quickly. Right. You often read in the paper at the end of a trial 
where the uh, offender is convicted, but the offender has been on bail during the course of the trial, that the judge will decide to, to bring the person into custody straight away at the end of the trial. Yes. Why, why, why is that done when they've been free for the whole of the trial, uh, but they're now um, placed in custody straight away? There are a range of factors the court is required to consider and they're set out in the Bail Act. But um, once a person is found guilty after trial, the circumstances change. And one reason for that is where it's a very serious matter, the obvious and very or most likely outcome is that that person will be imprisoned. Now, uh, that changes circumstances because the fact that that imprisonment is pending can be a factor which might operate to motivate the person to uh, leave the jurisdiction. So that might be one reason why um, bail is revoked at that period of time and the person is held in custody. Concern that they may abscond, I think. Finally, uh, do you ever wish that you'd been a civil lawyer instead of a criminal lawyer? No, that's <laughs> that's not my wish. I mean, I've had some experience in that area in the past before going into criminal law, sure. and that was an adventure for one reason or another. A career in the criminal law has been incredibly interesting because um, every single day um, I see so much of life um, so much of uh, people's backgrounds. Uh, there's just an endless amount of information that is never boring. It's been a very great privilege every day to um, be a part of the criminal justice system. It is incredibly challenging and demanding. Of course, it's a great responsibility and that responsibility can weigh very heavily. Um, Judge, can I just say on behalf of the community, I'm sure everyone thanks you for the contribution you make to the system, but can I just thank you for your contribution to the Sentencing Council's podcast series today? Thank, thank you very thank you much. Everyone. You have been listening to Judge Donna Woodburn, a judge of the New South Wales District Court. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.